bonjour, bonsoir, whatever time of day it is for you, wherever you are at in the world. You know, I think the last time I checked, there was something like 30 different countries that somewhat regularly have listened into this podcast. I mean, some are in countries like that only have one listener, but hey, that counts. Anyhow, wherever you're at in the world, today is a good day because I got to make a new friend who is an author, who is writing about some really important things. And I just have to say, seems like a really awesome person. It's Sarah Stancorb. Sarah has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Vogue, Slate, and recently she wrote a book called Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. You can find this book on all of the normal digital retailers or by going to sarahstancorp.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-S-T-A-N-K-O-R-B, sarahstancorp.com. So this book is not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's page after page of really good, but often intense truth-telling stories about the American, arrogant, westernized, Caucasian, usually power-hungry Christianity that exists here in the West speaking of 30 or so countries. Um, Discounted Christianity certainly has done some good over the years, but there's also a lot of dark, like underbelly. And people like Sarah are really, really good at exposing some of the truth about the power dynamics that have been playing out over the years. So when you commit to reading a book like Sarah's, it's like page after page. The word that comes to mind, I think I use the word when I talk with her, is relentless. Like She relentlessly dives into this, exposing the truth about how mostly women, but certainly marginalized people, have been manipulated and abused or controlled by this Western theological Christian weird system that we all have found ourselves in at times. So yeah, I won't lie, there's a part of me that continues to want to dismantle and disassemble the entire religious structure of the West because it's very, very sick. Goodness. Well, on that happy note, uh, there are some good things about the book, not the least of which is Sarah's strength in reporting about all of this and the strength of the women who've been trying to be courageous in the middle of all of it. And so we get into some of that as she and I talk. Hey, also, I do want to mention that Sarah experiences uh, a vocal issue. I think it's called spasmodic dysphonia. So her voice cracks in and out. So for this show, I've done something a little different. I've provided a transcript. I may do that moving forward all the time. That could be really helpful. But either way, you can find the link to access the show notes. Excuse me, a link to access the transcript in the show notes. And so that way you can catch everything she has to say. Again, I think she does a great job under the circumstances, but it might be helpful to have the, the words right in front of you as well, and I encourage you to check that out. But first, just a reminder on a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I've got a new book coming out as of this recording in a few weeks that I'm pretty interested in. It's called Indigo, The Color of Grief. I circled back, I hadn't done this in a few years, but I circled back around, circle, is that the right word? I don't know. I went back and pitched this story to a bunch of agents and a bunch of publishers. 
I'm not really sure that's necessarily the best way to go, but I wanted to be a good steward of the gift of this book. I think it's a gift. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. Didn't really get any bites, mostly because, well, to be fair, maybe some people didn't like my writing. What I'm suspicious of is that most most agents and publishers don't even really have time to read something like this when it's pitched to them because my platform really isn't that huge. I mean, when you only have 700 Substack followers, honestly, you got to add a zero to that and add a zero to a bunch of my other social media numbers in order to get most of their attention. And I'm not trying to be overly critical of the publishers. I think there's a place for it. So what I've been thinking all along anyhow is probably for this particular work, the best thing to do would be to crowdfund it and then release it through other channels after I crowdfund it. I love all the aspects of crowdfunding. For one thing, it gets you connected with people personally who are investing in your book. You know, going through your normal channels, you have no idea who's purchased your book. You have no way to contact them or interact with them. I mean, Amazon and Apple and Kobo and all those people do. So crowdfunding gives you that opportunity. I'm really excited about it, except I'm slightly nervous about it, more than slightly. Well, because the writing means so much to me and also because, frankly, it'd be embarrassing if I don't hit my goal. <laughs> so you get to play a role in all that. If you click on my URL, jonathanfosteronline.com, you'll see, uh, just scroll down. Depending on when you're listening to this episode, you'll see the link to click on the pre-campaign link or the actual campaign link. Either way, if you just click on that, you'll be taken to the right thing and then hopefully you can participate. Now, of course, if you're listening to this, like November, December of 23, that'll be fine too. By then, it'll be on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all those kinds of places. But first, in between there, we're going to do this crowdfunding thing. And I really would appreciate, need, hope that you help uh, participate. That thing's going live on October 17th. So you might as well jump on in and play a part and all that. All right, we got a quick word from our Choircast Network. And then we're going to jump in with our conversation with my friend, Sarah Stancorp. Thanks, everyone. Peace. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Wisdom of Hobbits by me, Matthew J. DiStefano. In this hopeful yet at times poignant homage, I focus on everyone's favorite halfling friend, The Hobbit. A charming people, this Shire-based race has captivated, enthralled, and enchanted the hearts and minds of millions. And though they're not a religious society, I argue that spiritual truths, love, kindness, generosity, hope, and even compassion can be found within their familiar yet still relevant and didactic tales. So come and enter a world of adventure and intrigue. Whether it's your first foray into Middle-earth or the Shire is your second home, Allow me to inspire you toward discovering your own inner hobbit. Available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your fine, fine books from Choir Publishing. All right. Okay, welcome everyone. This is my new friend, Sarah Stancorp. And I came across Sarah, I guess, was it through Substack or maybe a piece you wrote in uh, one of the periodicals recently and I immediately recognized uh, a voice that I was interested in and uh, so I jumped on that and anyhow one thing led to another and uh, Kelly connected us and so really glad to have you on the show today. Yeah thank you so much I'm really happy to be here. 
Yeah, well, let me just say, first off, before we get uh, into it, well, we're already into it, but um, the book is called Disobedient Women. It's really good. Um, mm. I I try to have people on, well, I mean, I do have people on that I'm interested in and that I want to hear. And, it, and it's, a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a bonus when there's good writing. So the content is strong and the way that you've written it is strong. You're clearly a journalist. I, I'm a writer. I like to take pride in my writing, but it's, it's different than the way you're writing. I mean, you're uh, the way you wove and are weaving everything together is really, really good. And, and I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that up front. And I, I, I appreciated that. And the work itself is like the word I had last night when I was finishing it up, well, it's the word I had basically every new chapter, like, oh, crap, here we go again. There's some <laughs> other train wreck of some asinine chicanery that some white, you know, Christian dude is doing. Uh, so the word I had was relentless. Like, you just mm-hmm. kept after it. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And I, I genuinely don't think I could have done it. I think after a few <laughs> a few hours of it, I'd just be like, these people are crazy, except, first of all, I, I'm part of the religious group. So I'm, you know, not that I advocate for any of the stuff that you're writing about, or I certainly hope I haven't perpetrated such craziness. But, you know, I'm like, I'm a, I'm the religion group's my group, you know, it's where I come mm-hmm. from. So what am I going to do? And then also, yeah, I couldn't have done it, but I'm glad there are people like you that have. And it's a really important book. Um, I was not surprised to see people like Kristen Dumay and um, Angela Dinker write endorsements for it. Because mm-hmm. it's all in that same line. Like if people read all three of those books, first of all, I'm not sure anyone would ever uh, step inside a church again for the rest of history. But, uh, <laughs> but secondly, really, really, really important stuff. So I'm, I'm basically, it's a rambling introduction to say, thank you. It's really important work. You wrote it really well. And I hope that people, I hope people will read it. Thank you. Um, the relentless, that's really a good word for it. Um, the relentlessness of this, I tried to convey like for the advocates who've worked on these issues for so long it really has been relentless every day it seems there's yet another story and they keep going so in some ways I wanted the reader to feel what that's like and maybe in that way respect the work that these advocates have been taking on for all this time because it's not easy none of it is easy right i hear what you're saying like it seems like the what they have been through the victims and the people who have been manipulated abused whatever uh across whatever words we use um seems like maybe it instilled a bit of um more strength in you to continue through the thing because it had to have been had to have been overwhelming um and slightly depressing at times yeah yeah it is heavy it's dark um although one 
Well, I messaged me privately on Instagram yesterday. There are a couple of small jokes that I wove in throughout, recognizing that if I didn't, people might just, you know, fall into a deep depression and never okay. pick the book back up. <laughs> so right. I try, and it's more of a gallows humor, and it's not yeah. frequently, but it is something I do see from advocates in this space. Too. There is, if there is something absurd, if there is something ridiculous, sometimes all you can do is laugh at it so that you can keep going. So, um, yeah, I, I tried, I tried, I tried to make it readable. Oh, you did. And I really, um, an extra element to it was the way you wove little bits and pieces about your parents and mm -hmm. your relationship with your dad through that. I think that I think that made the book kind of go next level because it was all of a sudden it just the lens shifted and it was, it was similar, but slightly different. Mm -hmm. um, what were you going for uh, with that part of the book in terms of you and your parents? And I saw that you dedicated it. I'm a writer. So I happen to always look at what people dedicate the books to. Sometimes it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it isn't. So you dedicated it yeah. to your mom. What, what was going on with all that? Yeah, so initially I had only planned to talk about a little bit about my own faith and the change in my own faith. Um, and, and it just so happened that I think it was a month before I got the book deal, my father, who was an alcoholic and explosive through all of my childhood, um, he broke his hip and, and I became primarily in charge of both of my parents' care. Both, it turns out, I had dementia, and I had to coordinate all of it, and both got sicker. My father ended up lung cancer. As his memory was also depleting, it was just sheer chaos. So I was balancing all of the research in the book with my own family and my own family history. So I think in some ways, there's just no way I could have written this book without that in that time, without a little bit of it seeping in. But because I was thinking a lot about memory and how memory works, given the dementia, um, and I was also in a lot of ways re-experiencing my childhood through these events, it also gave me a clearer lens for how abuse works. And I realized what I had grown up with, as bad as it had been, it was an entry point for a lot of people outside the church to at least understand what abuse is. But also I felt like it let me differentiate between the abuse many families experience and spiritual abuse which is what the people in my book experienced. And I tried to I tried to be clear about this. When I was a child, and my dad would have a bender and just be terrifying. I was scared of him. I thought something was wrong with him. But unlike my sources, I didn't see him as the head of the house put there 
through some godly means or like some of my other sources whose pastors are the ones who abuse them. These people who they saw acting with God's authority, there's this extra damage, this extra hurt when you believe the harm you're going through was was God's will, was under God's authority. And there's a, a unique pain that I, I felt like sharing my story could maybe contrast. Yeah. I, I really liked how you did that. And I totally was catching on to that and just being reminded of that. So one thing, like what you're saying is you grew up in this dysfunctional home, but at least it wasn't attached to this spiritual God-like father figure that so many people grow up in. Mm-hmm. So many people. It's just really amazing. But nevertheless, nevertheless, you did a really good job with that. And I thought it added an extra dimension to the whole story. Thank you. And it should be said, um, even though you didn't have to attach it to the spiritual abuse, it sucks that you went through that. And uh, um, for whatever it's worth, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And the story, yeah, you're writing this. It's so recent. Um, mm-hmm. COVID's happening. It's going on with your parents. You're tracking down all these crazy stories. Um, so you were really brave and strong. Um, mm. It's kind of messing me up just thinking about it, talking about it. So when when you started somewhere at the beginning, you 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 know you talk about all the difficulty that the readers are going to have to navigate as they read the book, but also that there's some positive stuff. Mm-hmm. So I read the book looking for the positive. I didn't find it for a while, but by the end, I, I recognized something that um, was really resonating, was ringing true with me in other things that I've been through. So I, I'm a former pastor. I've kind of been in, uh, basically evangelical world my my denomination wasn't so much evangelical ish well it kind of is it's gotten more that way but but mega church was definitely um kind of like the the thing that wielded that wields the strongest gravitational pull where i come from church planting and those kinds of things and so i was um just for a little bit of backstory i was asked to leave my denomination a few years ago over lgbtq plus because I tried to be pro-human and it wasn't going to work. And that started a series of, you know, a cascading things that I saw a lot of common denominators that were really, really disappointing and evil. But also what I'm trying to say is I located some really positive stuff in the middle of all that, that resonated with what I read in your book. And so before I say what I think the positive news is, what do you think? What do you think the mm-hmm. positive news is? I mean, for me, it's human resilience. It's seeing people taking on these massive institutions and really motivated to do it by nothing more complicated than the truth. And that I could bolster a person through something so difficult, that to me is the major takeaway. And something that throughout all of it, I mean, each of these stories, I had to, I had to hold on to something. 
and I wasn't just report. I wasn't just interviewing people. I was hiking and chasing down documents and doing all of the things you have to do to vet a story. But there are also times where I would just be forced to stop in the midst of all of it and think, "My God." this is one person and then over here is one other person and really without the internet they would have known these other people existed yeah. and maybe they wouldn't have been fortified to get through this but by finding each other they got through um, and i'm not a church goer anymore but um there is this almost the only word i can come up for come up uh, with for it is almost like a congregation of truth tellers who are motivated, I guess, by a doctrine of protecting other people. And that's a beautiful thing to witness. Yep. Yeah, me too. And that's pretty much what I was going to say as well. Uh, you know, about halfway through, 60% through, I was like, uh, oh, yeah, I I get it. I know why she's saying there's something positive here. It's it's basically what you just said. And your last line is you're talking about, you know, all these people, mostly women who mm -hmm. have been, um, you know, victimized by the spiritual institution so the last paragraph is they were called disobedient jezebel satan's mistress while they tried to protect others from them i learned a vital lesson disobedience is not wrong when you defy those doing harm it might be the thing that saves the rest of us in the end mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a good last line to your book thank you <laughs> did you, did you mm -hmm. recognize that like when you thought of that line or how, how did that how did that, how did you decide to end on that? Mm -mm. Um, so this book was at one point considerably longer, um, thousands, tens of thousands of words longer. It was massive. Um, that section that is now the end of the book, I remember I, when I write, I often will perseverate over a line over and over again in my mind, the first line of the paragraph, until it's set and, and I write the whole thing. So I have been doing it with the top of the section. Um, and I was just sat down in my office one day, things clicked, and I wrote it out. And then I had a page or two after that when I was physically cutting the book with scissors to try to trim it down. Um, I, I just, I liked reading that bit out loud. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I liked, I liked the sound of the words. And because the book starts with um, me trying to get saved, it felt like a good bookend yeah. Yeah. Um, to the whole. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's true. Um the way you started with your hilarious story of the, or pathetic story, I, I don't know what it is, of what they used. A little bit of both. Yeah, exactly. As much of, much of my adolescence was a little bit of both. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say you were pathetic. I meant the youth pastor and the whole environment. So, yeah, you start the book by 
by yeah. talking about getting saved as a teenager. And then so to end that way is another, yeah, it's a really creative and a really good way. And it, it reinforces what, what the positive thing here is. And which is the, um, I don't know if you said humanity, but that's what I keep thinking of the strength of humanity. And mm-hmm. for people listening, like, um, well, yeah, for anyone, that's as my theology has shifted and been reformed and reapproached. Um, that's one of the common denominators. One of the, one of the things that keeps coming up again and again is my interest and my commitment to like humanity and to the what if I'm not saying you have to believe this or anyone has to believe this, but for me, I think it's creative to think in terms of like you know in church world we were constantly talking about trying to be like God. And yet all the while God became, if the story is somewhat true, God became like us, not only in Jesus, but also even more so the incarnation isn't just Jesus. It's the whole world around us all the time. So we're constantly trying to be like something else, but that something else maybe is already trying to be like us. Let's just be us and let's be human and let's just elevate the strength of what's going on with humanity. Mm. I think good theology is good anthropology. Mm. Yeah. Good, good humanity. And, and, and you get to that in the book. And um, so if people are courageous enough, they'll get there too. I I really appreciated that. Uh, I had a few things highlighted in the book. Sometimes that's how I ask questions. I highlight stuff. Yeah. Uh, Basically, what in the world do you think is going? <laughs> this is just an overwhelming. Like, what's going on with white people in America? <laughs> what's our problem, man? Uh, okay, that's a larger question that I think <laughs> I'm qualified to answer. But um, I think the lens of the book gave me some clues. It maybe can help get to an answer. Um, focusing primarily on white evangelical spaces where um, these stories reside, where these people in the book were harmed. Um, something that became clearer as I was studying different groups of people who talked about their abuse, either on a blog or through hashtags, and they became interconnected. That interconnection, once they knew it wasn't only happening to them, they were able to see that there were structural issues within these institutions. So whether it was a dogma that was um, pushed within many of their churches, like complementarianism or Christian patriarchy, or corporal punishment to discipline your children and the abuse that that sometimes led to, once they were able to see that it wasn't just them, and they were able to look at the institution and say, there's a larger problem here. That larger problem very often had to do with power. It had to do with power of upholding the institution, and that's why you have cover up. People don't necessarily have the motivation to cover up a crime unless it's their 
the most beloved person who committed the crime or if their most beloved thing is its wider institution. Um, so that's part of it. And I think seeing that power and what it does in its naked form, then you can extrapolate well, what happens with other institutions. So if you look at the political might, which is folded into all of this, you cannot extract the two. That political will to power has those same abusive tendrils. So whether it's women or people of color or queer folks, holding down one group helps elevate another group and help them maintain their power. When that's folded into faith, then you have almost an, an easy answer when people start to question you from the outside. Well, it's God's will. It's in the Bible. Um, so I think that's part that's like, that's a roundabout. I know that's not a direct answer. Oh, what's up with white people, man? But um, I think that's at the root of it. And so you end up with a population of many, many people who have gotten the raw end of the deal. In a book like this, um, I think in some ways it's it's not enough. Like many of my sources are white women from within this powerful group of churches, this group of religious communities. And still what they went through. So then you add in people with even less power and I think that it's a starting point, but it's not the end of the conversation by any means. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. we got to have people who pick this up and run with it mm -hmm. even more. What do you think would have happened on January 6th of, was that 21? Mm -hmm. If the people scaling the walls had been Black people or queer people or people of color, what do you think our country would have done? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm careful with hypotheticals. Sure. I will say, so I was sitting at my computer wrapping up a story on January 6th, and I had popped over to C-SPAN just to keep the window open, and I saw people walking through the rotunda, and I called my husband and said, We've been there on a tour. They're, they're knocking the stanchions over. Like, what is happening? This isn't anything I would be allowed to do. And I think the um, the lack of reaction speaks volumes. Um, and not to keep pulling back to the book, but I think it's difficult when you see yourself or you see an in-group behaving badly, it's a little more difficult to call them on it because you you empathize this in a way or you may think, well, I would never do wrong if I were here. Like, surely they just, if you want a tour, <laughs> um, maybe they're just excited. I don't know what people are thinking, but it's difficult when you see yourself in a group to suppose I'll do something unexpected or something you would not do. So, and I think that makes it easy to give a pass when other groups of people would immediately have been arrested and stopped. 
um, or at least there would have been a more severe attempt. There would have been a faster response from the president's office if they were um, not his supporters. I'm, yeah. I feel fairly safe saying that much. Yeah, I do too. I think it would have. Yeah, thank you for, yeah, we probably should stay away from hypotheticals. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, whenever I think of January 6th, that's the first thing that comes to my mind, because that's what was coming to my mind as the day unfolded. If mm -hmm. these were anybody but these white men, mostly, I think the country would have imploded. So, mm -hmm. so in a roundabout way, you know, again, your last line, the, like in some ways, um, the people who've been marginalized, n not reacting um, force for force, and maybe that kind of situation maybe did save the country in some ways, which reminds me of, again, your last line about women in particular, but people who've been marginalized, saving all of us. Mm -hmm. There's something really beautiful about all of that, though there's nothing beautiful about what people did on January 6th. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I also wanted to say, yeah, I totally agree with you on the power thing. I, I think that that's, that might be, it's hard to pin it down to one issue, but that might be the underlying issue. And for American Christianity, you know, that that's all just assumed because we have this capital O omnipotent top-down hierarchical idea of God. When you begin to suggest, when any of us begin to suggest into these institutionalized capital O omnipotent thinking settings that, oh no, God might be incarnated in the midst of all of us and that there really is no hierarchy and it's all flattened and it really upsets everything. <laughs> yes, 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 it does. Um, I think, so for the years I initially started reporting on these women, I thought I was reporting on something called Christian patriarchy. And really for me after January 6th, and it forced me to start rethinking because the structures that were causing women, demanding that women submit, demanding that women keep quiet and other survivors, but that, that mandate was really focused on women within these churches. It was also a part of a larger project of dominion. So there's this encouragement for women to have as many babies as possible. You just are wombed to populate the army for God. So in that way, you're a tool for this dominionist attempt to fill the nation with Christians. So that's a part of it. So you have a role, but you're low. You're low in this hierarchy. Um, and then as I was studying other humanities that were a little more blatant about their um, hopes to create dominion over the people around them, over the rest of the country, I started to realize that this Christian patriarchy thing was just one element of Christian nationalism. And I I had a moment where I thought, I should have seen this coming. <laughs> um, I don't know that anyone really saw it coming. But now I think 
a lot of our eyes are open to this thirst for power that is very honest about what it wants and about the the power and control it wants over the rest of the country. And I'm I'm hoping in some ways this book serves as a warning for people who don't exist in these spaces, who are not in these sort of churches, who usually would roll their eyes and say, oh, that's just church stuff. Um, it's not. It's bleeding all over the place. And uh, if, if that power gains more control, what would that mean for the people within those communities, but also for you? Um, and that's... That's a big question, and I'm not sure I have an answer, but I wanted to make a place for people to at least start thinking about that. Yeah, and you do it very well. For me, yeah, part of my reconstruction um, has been reapproaching power. I had to reframe it, so now... I think in terms of power, like relational power is different than authoritative power. Mm -hmm. So relational power is full of consent. And um, by the way, my, my dissertation, I wound up calling it theology of consent. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's full of consent and agency and, you know, empowerment to others and autonomy. That's relational power. Wanting the best for others. This all, all this other stuff is BS, this, this hierarchical power. And there's, sometimes I say it this way, for those who care about the Bible, um, some people listening don't care, which is totally fine. There's a way to read the Bible that might lead you to think that if there's a God, that God's like capital O omnipotent hierarchy power. I just think it's a really unhealthy way to read it. Mm. And our world is, our American Christianity is evidence of that for the most part. Tell me about the rapture. You had great story. That was you, right? In the book about yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> junior high or high school. And that was at, that was with a yeah. UMC church, which is typically not as kind of crazy, mm -hmm. but maybe, maybe share that story and the kind of damage you thought it probably did or it, it did do. Yeah. So I was in the junior high youth group, which was my mother's, um, fix for the fact that I had asked for therapy and we didn't have money. So we switched churches. So I we in a youth group. She figured that I'll do the trick. And in a lot of ways it did. It was wonderful. I had support of adults. I love the other kids. And we had gone on other retreats just with our church, just, just our own youth group. It were fun. I got away from home. So we ended up on a district youth group retreat, which and other churches and other leaders from other churches were there. Um, and one night, it must have been Saturday evening because it was a weekend, um, the uh, leader of one of the other youth groups came in with a couple of youth with a boom box and we've been gathered for communion in the large fellowship room and they turned on the boom box and there was news that there were nuclear bombs coming directly toward Ohio which is where I grew up 
and I they suggest we want to take communion in our final moments. Um, there's a sense they had later they were just trying to save us, uh, save our souls. But I I fled the room, which is different for me. I usually would have done what I was told, but I was that frightened that I ran. Um, went to our little room with the bunk beds, got in my bunk, and I prayed, thinking I was about to die, and so was my family somewhere else in Ohio. And then I heard screaming. Um, and that mental space where I was, I assumed I was a god, and that was the sound of you know, death. But no, it was the other... Um, kids from my youth group who had exploded in anger when they found out that, no, this was not true, this was a farce. Um, and after the aftermath of that was a lot of very angry kids in a Methodist retreat center in the woods. Um, and I, uh, I think it took me a couple of years to really sort through that because it was a betrayal. Um, it was a betrayal of trust. I didn't blanket that sense of betrayal over the other people from my church after the fact. Um, it really, in my mind, was like one bad actor. And years later, I actually, I'm not sure why I was reading it. I was hanging out with a youth group leader looking for activities. But I did see in a recommended activities for youth book um, something similar to this. Not that you lie to them and you tell them there's just a nuclear bomb, but instead suggest to youth what if this happened and you, you know, it's more of a hypothetical something for them to consider. How how would you feel? There was the recommendation to act it out and convince kids away from home that this was actually happening to them. Um, and I think also that what sticks out to me even more was the look in the eyes of these kids that I was friends with. Uh, one of my buddies, like, he's a big guy, he like got in a little bit of trouble here and there, but he had a temper took a chair and I chucked it at this wall of windows and it bounced off the chair around the day of end. Some other kids ran off into the woods. No one knew where they were. We were all afraid about what they would do. Um, that turmoil and that hurt after the fact, I just cannot imagine being an adult and not considering that that was a possible outcome. Um, but it including it in the book, I, I wanted to show that there there was that, even out in United Methodist world, there was a, during that end of, you know, through the 90s into the new millennium, there was this undercurrent about, like, the end, the end is coming, the rapture is coming. We didn't call it that, but there was that uh, thing kind of happening in Christian culture, um, so I, I put it in the book, not really recognizing until later that I was also telling a story about betrayal of trust. 
Yeah. It's a sad, but a perfect story. Right. And I think you mentioned this, but you also in the book, right? You had a friend who was kind of helping you realize that this might have been a bigger deal for you than you originally realized, something like yeah. that. Yeah. And I think that was in Substack. Oh, um, okay. someone, someone asked me about it later and that kind of made me reconsider why I was thinking about this story. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. covering the way these topics impacted um, some of my sources' lives. Yeah. Traumatizing, man. Mm-hmm. Us humans, we carry, all of us carry a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. What's your, you don't have to go into detail or you can, whatever, it doesn't matter uh, either way, so there's no pressure, but what's your faith like, your personal commitment, conviction like now? I know you don't, you don't really go to church. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. um so there was a period where I did call myself an atheist, and I, I think I'm closer to an agnostic. Just I, I think it would be a, a stretch for me to have that level of certainty about the metaphysical universe in any direction. Um, so that feels like the most honest answer. Um, I do spend a lot of time with people in religious spaces. I have a lot of friends who are clergy. Um, And I'll say that people who you think have a lot of faith, who sometimes are the people up at the pulpit, are often more willing to ask questions than some of the people in the pews. Yeah, their answers are also far less certain. So I I think I'm in a a kind of comfortable spiritual place for me after a lot of a lot of time really going through what I guess is now now called deconstruction. But then I I thought it was just me and it was just really bad and it felt awful and no one else ever ever went through this. So um, I think I hold on to things I see of value in other people. Um, And I don't think if I make sense of something in the world that that's necessarily anything other than me making sense of it. Um, I certainly don't think everything happens for a reason. Um, or is caused by some omnipotent being. But I think with some wherewithal and some distance, we can find a reason, or at least make reason, out of some of the darkness in life and try to create something better for other people. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I don't think everything happens for a reason, but with a little bit of patience and insight, we might be able to make reason. We might be able to reason ourselves into something better and new and good. And I think if there's a God that that's, that's what's happening, that, that that God, he or she is encouraging us and pulling us forward into that. Mm. And, um, 
I just, I realized quite a while ago that some of my atheist acquaintances were, were probably being more honest to what's going on in life and maybe with the scripture or whatever else than, than a lot of my so-called theist <clears throat> Christian friends. So if anyone's listening, yeah, let's see. I want to say this right because I'm not trying to like, I don't need you to be, I don't need anyone to be a anything. But it's possible, I think, to be an atheist and to be more in tune with love um, than it is to be, quote unquote, a Christian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, and, and I'm really thankful for the atheists in my life who kept pointing out the inconsistencies of this God that I was introduced to or I was told existed that needed sacrifice or needed the death of his own son. None of that. That just doesn't make any sense. Do you have yeah, kids? I too. Yeah. I was just starting to say, especially when I became a parent, like I never needed any of my kids to be hurt in order to give the other one forgiveness or something, you know? So mm -mm. anyhow, I interrupted you. You started to say something. Well, no, no I think I forgot. <laughs> so, oh, no, I did. Oh, um, a lot of this work and reporting on abuse within the church i i try to balance because it's true because it's accurate that people in the advocacy world on this topic some are very very faithful and i don't know how and they're very impressive and some have completely walked away and it's one of these interesting intersection points in this country and you don't get this publicly in a healthy way very often but they just work together and there can be arguments and people can get it on but it's a place where i can find a diversity of opinions and a, a wide breadth of people with a lot of different outlooks on how the world works but they share a motivation yeah, the motivation is protecting other people. Um, and that's uh, explaining that to like a magazine editor. You know, I have a church story. Uh, well, we don't have a lot of Christian readers. Well, it's not just for Christians. This is, there, there are some universals, no matter what, what theology people are coming from, that um, I appreciate. And it just it feels more honest to be telling stories that show people do have different ideas. There's not just one way right. of being alive in the world. Right. Yeah, that's a pretty cool, uh, I'm sure, very hard job that you have in that space. But it's a pretty cool job to, to be able to, like some of us just don't get that opportunity to step into some of those less theological or less quote-unquote spiritual which is a silly way to look at it because i think probably everything is as an element of spirit to it but to be able to go into those settings and write those kinds of stories that's pretty cool mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i want to be like i want to be like you when i grow up okay <laughs> um, oh i thought i would say you know what i've been thinking recently um I don't know why, something you just said about faithful. So recently it came to my mind, which means I probably read it somewhere. Let's be honest. I'm not 
particularly um, novel in and of myself. But the difference between the word faithful and loyal, between faithfulness mm-hmm. and loyalty, and I no longer, I'm just not interested in loyalty. I'm interested in being faithful and people who are faithful. And when you're faithful, uh, I think the difference is you, you just have more creativity and space and imagination and grace to be able to back up and question things. And we've done ourselves, all of us have done ourselves a big disservice by, yeah, I just don't like the word loyalty at all anymore. Mm-hmm. That's not a question. It's just a comment. Yeah. It's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that resonates with what you're saying. Like there's this really interesting middle faithful space and you're being faithful to this like voice. I don't know what it is, this thing, this whisper, this invitation to stand up for people. First of all, seems like a Jesus move to me, uh, but Jesus may or may not have anything to do with Americanized Christianity. Mm-mm. All right. So the book called Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. Sarah Stancorb. Uh, that's quite the subtitle. It's very, very long. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard for me to remember. Honestly, it's too long. Me too. That's why I had to read it. But that's what we do. We, we, you know, that's the whole, that's the game. Cool, cool title. Then you have to have a subtitle that kind of wraps it up and you, and you do, it works. It's really good. Where, uh, where would you encourage people to find you? Uh, So I am still on Twitter or X, whatever it is this week. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, because the people I write about are still there, so I have to be there. Um, My website is just sarahstancorp.com. and that has links to my Substack. Um, I'm about to load on some a book club discussion guide for the book. And there's a Spotify playlist if you want to listen to what I listened to as I wrote the book. Um, there's an academic guide, all sorts of stuff. But um, I'm the only person in the world with my name. So <laughs> well, that's me. good. That's yeah. good. Um, is your book club thing going to be on your website or on the Substack? Uh, on my website, at least. And um, good idea. I should put it on Substack. Yeah, you probably should. I'm literally trying to, I'm literally in the middle. One of my projects right now is uploading some stuff to Substack to try to, uh, you know, give paid paid readers an extra thing. Mm-hmm. It's such a cool, I've only been on since February. I switched over, but I, I really am enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thanks so much. Thanks for allowing me to mess up the time zones. We still made it happen. And um yeah. I'll I'll say goodbye, but then I'll stop the recording here. Then okay. I'll say I'll say goodbye offline. So to the listeners, peace everyone. Thank you.